1: From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Bergman. I'm Chris Beam.
2: I'm Candace Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli,
3: and welcome to Democracy Works. Welcome back everybody. Uh, we are back in the swing of things after our summer break from the show. I hope you all enjoyed the episodes that we put out over the summer. You heard from some other podcasts and some things that we didn't quite get to uh, in the last academic year. But we are also excited, Michael, to have you back with us. You were on sabbatical last semester. So uh, welcome, welcome back.
1: Well, thank you. It's great to be back. I missed the show and I missed all of you.
3: As per usual, and I pulled out a couple of things that I thought we could talk about just to reorient ourselves and our our listeners as we head into a new election cycle, a new semester academic year for all of us. And the first thing is uh, the first Republican primary debate was held as we record this on August 29th, about a week ago, it'll be just about two weeks by the time this episode comes out. And there have been countless takes about who did well or not so well and, and all of that. So I don't really wanna focus us on that. But instead, uh, I know the first thing that caught my eye when I saw the stage itself was that it read Democracy 2024. And I would just love to know what you all think about that. Does Fox News and the people on the the debate stage, the uh, Republican candidates, are they thinking about democracy the same way we are? Or if not, what is behind it? What does that say to you that it was so front and center, literally, at the debate?
0: I was kind of surprised to see that sign, to be honest with you, because what I hear at least... Well, more frequently than defensive democracy is this uh, Republican saying, well, we're not a democracy. We're a republic. And, you know, you expect to hear this from from the flakes of the world like Lauren Bobbit, But Senator Mike Lee, Senator Ted Cruz, this is not a, a fringe characterization among um, among Republicans. And let me just stipulate that's wrong. That's a <coughs> dumb thing to say there. You know, it's like saying it's it's not a cracker. It's a saltine. But it's so so it's, it's nonsense, but it's also pernicious nonsense, I think. And so if we're not a democracy, well, what do we care about efforts to make our democracy better or worse? You know, it's basically not our concern because we're a republic. And so I was like I said, I was surprised. And maybe that's a, a little pushback from the RNC. I don't know. But it but it was um, it was a surprise. And I think, that, you know, I'm glad to see it.
1: I have a couple thoughts on that i you know it's an election and so you know from from anybody's perspective even if you think of the country as a republic rather than a democracy it is a republic then elections are central to it but what does strike me to the extent that i was watching the debate or what i what i see on fox news is that you know so this is a network that was sued and had to pay a great deal of money because of election denialism And so they're cautious about that now, but at no point have I – did they talk about on that stage or have I seen evidence that Fox talks about why election denialism is dangerous to democracy, how what they were doing was hurtful to democracy, not just hurtful to their own bottom line. I also just to just to respond to what Chris saying it, on the mood of the nation poll, when we ask people what they value about democracy, we often get this response from conservatives, especially older conservatives, where are a republic, not a democracy. I wouldn't say we don't get it from a majority of Republicans, but we get it from a a not insignificant percentage and i don't we look at that statement a little bit differently we don't necessarily think it's dumb we think that what they're doing is expressing a concern with democratic rule with mob rule in their own words but certainly in majority rule and i think it's because they recognize that you know within the conservative movement that they're increasingly a shrinking part of the electorate and they're threatened by newly empowered groups and they and uh, so they want to emphasize that we're not a democracy, but rather this republic, which, which we have always taken to mean, and uh, our interpretation of it goes back to Robert Dahl's interpretation of it, that this phrase captures the idea that there is a fear of mob rule, of majority rule, and that goes back to the Federalist Papers, right? That was Madison. Well, he's talking about Athens,
0: right? And so that's the one government in the history of democracies that was actually a direct democracy and that was 2500 years ago so i mean i actually think that the the issue is that they're trying to legitimize the two most undemocratic dimensions of our government which is the electoral college and the the two senators for each state and and they are they are apoplectically undemocratic, and they're not going anywhere. And um, and they usually, and at least recently, they end up benefiting Republican candidates. So they want to justify that ideologically. But so anyway. just,
2: to, just just to dovetail on that point, Chris is that one thing that I can say that conservatives are very good at is co-opting particular concepts for their own meaning and purpose, defining them as they see fit. So for example, voter integrity. When people are talking about voter ID or early voting or mail-in ballots um, and why we would want to, um, you know, raise the bar for people to actually um, cast their ballot. Um, Some people will call this voter integrity, which sounds great. Democracy is also a word that sounds great. So this is very much in that pattern. I think the other thing that stands out to me or stood out to me was the extent to which a group of people who say they love the Constitution have policies and agendas that seem very anti. And so one of them, for example, is... Vivek Ramaswamy's idea that we should raise the voting age to, you know, your mid 20s or something like that. Um, Right. So this is a way to cut out a large portion of the population. Or as another example, both kind of Mike Pence and Ron DeSantis, essentially kind of talking about federalizing policies that they say, like, that are supposed to be at the state, so which is it? Are we doing federalism or are we doing national politics where one particular party that is indeed shrinking gets to say um, what's good for everyone, right? So it's, it's very much moving away from local politics and states' rights and for these kind of overarching let's make the United States Florida kind of things. So I, I find it laughable. That um, this kind of talk about lauding the Constitution and loving democracy are, um, this is the kind of, that what we get when we unpack it, we see that that neither of these things are are truly valued um, among these candidates.
0: You know, I have to just, just to put a point on that, just about every question that you asked, Jenna, I could like just summarize up with talk is cheap. <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, say you love democracy. Well, okay. But
1: actions speak louder than words. So anyway. Well, I think we should have confused democracy and the constitution. The constitution is a pretty undemocratic G-touché. document. And that's my point about republic, not a democracy in part. I mean, the constitution is littered with provisions to try to protect not against direct democracy, but against majority rule in general. I mean, the electoral college we talked about, the Senate. We could go on and on. I mean, there there were all kinds of restrictions built in there, intended to uh, no, just the whole creation of a Republican sort of elite that would emerge through their filtering system of multiple elections. You know, having the state legislators vote for the senators and and the state legislators picking the electors, and on and on. They wanted to remove things from the people as much as they possibly could. And they certainly, I mean, <laughs> Ramaswamy in particular has a uh, shaky notion of the Constitution in, in general terms. He's, he's often sort of tossing things out there that have nothing to do with the Constitution. And uh, I don't even think he understands exactly when it, when it was written. Uh, what, what most alarmed me, though, Candice, in, in line with some of the things that you were talking about was I, I think that some of them were talking about bombing Mexico. Or maybe just putting heads on stakes at the border and using the military at the border. These are things that I don't know if these are against the Constitution necessarily. They're certainly against the law. So there seem to be uh, they're playing to the audience.
3: And speaking of that, uh, you know, we were chatting before we started recording about um, the growing number of voters (laughs) who identify as independent. Now, they may still vote Republican uh, or vote for Republican candidates. But I, I wonder what that says to all of you about the notion of of a primary. And I, I'm sure there's, you know, something similar on the Democratic side as well. You know, we've talked on the show before about primaries tending to attract the extremes of the party in terms of voters. And I, I just wonder with seemingly more and more people and more and more younger people identifying as independent, does the system need to change to to catch up with that? Or is it going to lead to the candidates that are selected through the primary process perhaps being out of step when it comes to the general election?
2: So this is really tricky because it's even hard to say the primary system because it's different in every place. So in Pennsylvania, you have to choose a party. And if you're independent, you may not vote in the party. And so then we could see how independence can be locked out of that situation. In the prime in North Carolina, you can identify as an independent, but you must choose a party to vote in the primaries. And I wonder, I guess I haven't, I mean, this is an empirical question is, do we get very different types of candidates out of the two types of systems, one
1: where independents are locked out and another where they're not. I don't think I've ever seen anything compelling that that is true, although it seems like it should be, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Because the people voting in primaries are the most extreme members of each party. The Republican primary electorate is quite different from uh, the electorate that's likely to vote for Republican candidates in 2024, for example. They're just far more committed to Donald Trump. They're far more conservative on some of their policies. And they do nominate some ex- rather extreme candidates. You know, I think that the polarization from whatever the sources are, the primaries or whatever, whatever is driving the polarization, and I believe it's multiple factors. It's been happening for a very, very long time. But I think the polarization does drive many young people in particular into calling themselves independents. Because the one, one thing that polarization does force you to do, and this is a lot tougher for a younger voter coming into the political system than it is for somebody who's been in it for a while, is you have to choose between two drastically different alternatives. And uh, that might not be, uh, two drastically different alternatives who seem to hate each other. And and that might not be something that's appealing to, uh, to many of them. I'm not the pers- first person to come up with this, but I, I do think that's part of what's driving the rise of independence. And as more of these young people come into the electorate, we're going to see the number of independents continuing to increase. That The impact of that is going
0: to be is that it's going to further diminish the power of parties, which we've talked about being an issue and a problem in terms of gatekeeping and, and setting norms for behavior and expectations, things like that.
1: Right. I I mean, that's what strikes me about the Republican Party right now is the complete abandonment of the role of gatekeepers. You know, so you mentioned Republicans and Democrats. The Democratic Party is operating as a gatekeeper traditionally has. I don't think they're holding primaries in many states. Certainly, they are making it as difficult as they possibly can for anybody to come in and oppose Joe Biden because they're playing gatekeeper. But the Republicans, I mean, the idea that a political party would nominate for president somebody who is under indictment in four different cases and is going to be out on bail, as Christie likes to bring up, and maybe even is convicted <laughs> by that point, is just mind-blowing. Like A political party doesn't do that as we traditionally think of a Republican party, because the job of a political party, more than anything, is to win elections. That is a reason for existing Traditionally, as we have thought about them, they exist to find candidates, run them and win. Yet they know that running somebody who is in the situation that Trump is going to be in is 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 not going to go well for them. But they seem incapable of playing any kind of gatekeeping role on this. Got a kind of free for all. And and everything's being driven by Donald Trump. They're letting it happen.
0: You know, we've seen this this show before.
1: Yeah, I mean, right, Mitch McConnell could have stopped the whole thing. I mean, if you think of Mitch McConnell as sort of the leader of, you know, the establishment leader of the Republican Party, he could have stopped it. He could have stopped it in the second impeachment. Instead, he came out and he said, we're going to let the criminal justice system do this. We're not going to do it this way. That was exactly what he said. There's a move to the criminal justice system. And you can see all the respect that many Republican leaders are giving to the criminal justice system now that they've got Donald Trump in their clutches. But all he had to do was vote for impeachment. And that was it.
0: You you notice how silent Mitch McConnell has been over the last two months. But the other thing is, I mean, I'm I'm quite confident that he thought he could
1: have his cake and eat it too. American institutions, including the judicial system, are being routinely torn apart by many Republican elites. And very few of them, including Mitch McConnell, are standing up for them and saying, look, we have a process. We're now in that process. In fact, when I voted to not impeach him, I said it should move to the process. So we have to respect the process. We have to see what happens. We have to believe in the integrity of the system. He's not doing that. And by the omission, what he's doing is he's allowing all these voices to just now Right now, we know that American public opinion, we've done polling on this, has shifted, especially among Republicans, strongly against the FBI. It's strongly against the Justice Department in general, whatever the resolution of these cases now. Right. The juries have been vilified even before they're chosen. Even before any of this happens, they have made sure that nobody will trust or at least people on the Republican side, many of them will not trust the system. So Mitch McConnell's silence is not to me okay. His silence is going along with this because he's got responsibility. He's the Senate minority leader. He's a leading Republican establishment figure. I can't think of anybody else who, would, who, who has that role. But Kevin McCarthy, but he doesn't have, you know, Kevin McCarthy is a totally different kind of thing. Right. He, he does everything he can to decimate American right.
0: institutions. No, I I can't argue with any of that. But none of this is new, right? There, <laughs> this is this is well, the same. I think
3: what, pattern we what going is, back to
1: 2016.
3: I mean, what is maybe new and Michael you started to to mention this before is the is the Republican Party being becoming more and more one of those institutions that conservatives or republicans are turning against. And and what happens if that is indeed the case? You know, the incentive, as you said, has traditionally been to win elections, but are there other incentives that might knock that down from first place, so to speak?
1: And Well, th- to me, th- it's the sort of attachment of the Republican Party to one person as an instrument to that person. And to the extent that they're not an instrument to that person, then they're disposable too. And I mean, I suspect and have Eager to hear from others too that, you know, as this thing plays itself down and if Donald Tr- Trump starts to sort of crumble, as I continue to believe he will, then that party is going to go to war with itself. And, you know, you already saw at the debate some policy routes about which there's going to be really serious conflict within the Republican Party over Ukraine. And especially when the funding bill comes up in the Republican House where I think they're probably going to vote against continued funding for Ukraine. And then the Senate is not going to be very happy with that. But you saw between Pence and and Nikki Haley, right? And then uh, Ramaswamy and some of the others. So I I think there are real policy conflicts within that party, uh, probably in a lot of other areas as well. But they're also around just this devotion to one person.
2: I would like to talk a little bit about that. So I was asked by a journalist why i thought that and the question was why isn't santis doing as well as we thought and the questions that were posed to me around were around rhetoric and i said that i actually think that that's not the issue that we're kind of in this moment where we are seeing a thing that maybe we haven't seen before which is kind of loyalty to an individual and you know i think about I remember when there was a shirt, someone bought me a shirt with Obama's face on it. And I thought that was so weird because I'm like, oh, that's not something that we do in the States. Like that's something that other people do in non-democratic countries to kind of focus on a particular human person. And I wonder to what extent we're just not even tapping into this idea of loyalty because it's not something that we've seen it we haven't seen it this way, yeah. and we don't really seem to have language around it. I have that thought around the flags.
1: Like I never remember flags before for, for candidates. These especially flags that are mm-hmm. you know bigger than the house that mm-hmm. they're flying in front of uh, with Trump's name on them, and and there's something really you know. Well, it, it's kind of a cult of personality, and, and that's that's a dangerous thing, especially if the party is a part of that. Right. Which it very clearly seems to be. It's a right
0: manifestation now. of connecting a political leader intimately to one's own identity. It's, it's not just a partisan choice, it's not just uh, an expression of, of opinion. It's this is who I am. And the fact that you, you can also do it in a way where you are thumbing your nose at everybody who doesn't like it. That's the other ad- advantage to doing that, but yeah, I, I noticed that. I mean, I canvassed for Obama. I gave him money, and the I, I you know, I put a sign in my yard, and that was it, right? That was it. But that's not what's going on here. And I, I really have tried to try to figure out what it is that accounts for this difference. And I, I think that's it. That that it is to be a Trump supporter is to attach one's own sense of. Purpose, meaning, value, identity—directly to that person—which is not yeah.
1: a good recipe. To be one Democrats. of the I guess my
2: and I guess my question is: is have we ever seen this
1: in our history? We've seen demagogues, but we, I don't know that we've ever seen quite this—not
0: like this. I mean, yeah. you know, Roosevelt was president for what, 10 years Four elections. I remember people saying, yeah, Joe Lewis was always the champ. The Yankees were always the World Series champion. And Roosevelt was always the president. But that's about as far as it went. It was never, I don't know, at least I don't recall it being
1: this kind of identification. You know, with Lindbergh, uh, maybe with Father Coughlin, maybe even with George Wallace. But in all of those cases, parties played the role of gatekeeper. They kept them out. Right. And, the, you know, this is this is really one of the just really important insights from that how democracies die. Mm-hmm. That that responsibility has just been abdicated. So you get here. Maybe, Jenna, a good time to transition to the indictments because we're, we're talking. Yeah, about
3: I that. was That's I was going, going to indictment. actually. <laughs> so I want to again, there's so much changing. Uh, and, you know, I don't want to get too bogged down in the weeds of every single indictment, I'm sure. Our listeners have sort of kept up with with some of that, but I want to instead focus us on an op-ed that um, Jessica Hughesman from Votebeat, who was a guest on the show last fall, she covers election administration at the local level and the, the people who make elections run and work. I'm just going to read a few lines of this and I'll, I'll link the whole thing in the, the show notes. But she says, I don't have to tell you that an indictment won't solve these problems. I also don't have to tell you that things are likely to get worse before they get better. The push for hand counting paper ballots, the angry battles over control of elections, the rampant abuse of public records requests by bad faith actors and the baseless lawsuits that demand so much taxpayer money are ongoing proof that his message, meaning Trump's message, is still resonating. So I think it's it's tempting to see that, yeah, you know, on one hand, Trump's finally maybe going to get what so many people hope is is coming to him. But yet there's these other things that have already happened. And we're going into another election with a a workforce that is at best burned out, if not left (laughs) public service or moved on to something else because they're getting threats and you know, just it, all, as, as Jessica says, all these things that make it difficult, if not impossible, to, to do their job. So I wonder how you all kind of square those things and maybe how our listeners should think about squaring those two things, like t- Trump being going through the, the justice process, but also the effects that, you know, what he is accused of doing seems to have already caused.
0: I don't know what's going to happen and I I think I'm I'm less pessimistic than Jessica is but you know I don't want to sound like do justice or so the heavens fall but I'm not far from that I you know I just the rule of law is the rule of law and I you know I'm absolutely certain that things might get worse but I am even more certain that the uh, alternative of doing nothing, of establishing a two-tier system of justice is absolutely and, and, and categorically worse. And so uh, that's a hill I'm willing to die on.
2: Well, let me just say we already have a two-tier system
0: of the criminal legal system. So. But not this way. I mean, yes, we do. But the idea that a, that a president, we're not we're just going to let that go. You're right. Of course, that's right. But it doesn't change what's at stake
1: in this in this choice. I think Houseman's kind of mixing two things up together and it's a bit of a red herring. So nobody ever said that these indictments or the criminal justice system going after what happened on Around the uh, 2020 election was going to fix the problems with our democracy. And that's not the job of the Justice Department. That's not what they do. Right. They take ripe cases and then they prosecute them and then judges judge them. And and democracies do this with former leaders all the time. There's nothing new here in terms of democracies. This is not like, you know, the end of the democracy that we're prosecuting a former president. It's happened in but France. But it is for us. We've never done it. But it, it, is, not an a, it is not an undemocratic action. It's happened yeah, in France. I completely it's happened in that. South Korea. It's happened in many. It's happened in Italy. Italy. It's happened in other France. countries. It's happened yeah. in Italy. Right. So it's happened in other places. It, once somebody leaves the office, they're they're just a citizen. And they're liable to the justice system, which is treating him, I think, uh, quite nicely right now relative to the severity of the crimes. The other issue has to do with the ongoing threats to democracy from the perversion of our elections, in particular, along the lines of what happened in 2020, which, putting the details aside, was an effort to subvert the will of the people in multiple states. You know, one of the things that I was working on during my sabbatical was that my colleague Michael Nelson and I... I here we're working with folks at State United, who some of our listeners may remember was on the show last year and won our Brown Medal. And we've been uh, sort of cataloging very carefully the presence of election deniers in state legislatures. And so, for example, in Pennsylvania, well over half the Republicans, well over half of the Republicans in the state legislature continue to deny <laughs> that Joe Biden won Pennsylvania and won the election in 2020. And, and we know from other guests we've had, from things we talked about, this kind of election denial is that this is dangerous. This is a dangerous sauce to really be getting involved in. We also know there's been all kinds of machinations in terms of the people that supervise elections in various states, changes in the laws, removing local control, all kinds of things like that. So whether or not we have disaster coming, I certainly hope not. We require vigilance. Continued vigilance on what's going on because we, we continue to have a highly decentralized system of elections in this country where we allow states who are under the political control of people that don't acknowledge even the last election that they have the control over the election. So I think that is continued concern, a continued threat, something that needs to continue to be monitored. I'm not really sure what it has to do with Donald Trump, other than it is important that it be transparent what happened last time. And the only way to achieve that transparency is going to be through the courts, or at least an important way to achieve that transparency is going to be through the courts. It came through the January 6th committee, but for half the country, that was devalued, right? Oh, those were the Democrats. Now it's going to come out of the courts. And that's why there's such an effort to devalue the courts as well, because we can't, that way we don't have to accept what comes out of them.
2: Wait, and by come out of the courts, you're talking about Trump's cases.
1: Well, principally, but I also think, you see, what, what I'm really fascinated by the Georgia case, and not, not actually because Donald Trump is at the top of it, but because of the people at the bottom of it. Because what the, what the Georgia case does is show at the state level, where these things go on, what happened to steal an election. And so you've got the harassment, mm-hmm. the, the utter harassment of these two election workers, right? That was perpetrated by people in Georgia and people from outside Georgia in Georgia. That's a Georgia state crime. It should be tried there. You also have you know, these fake electors. They're prosecuting them in Michigan because that was a Michigan plot. It should be prosecuted in Georgia too. It should probably be prosecuted in Arizona as well. These are state, and there were other pieces of it as well. So it's not just Donald Trump standing at the top, which of course is what Jack Smith is all about with his case and why he streamlined it the way that he did. But what I like about the George case, what I think it's important is it shows what can happen within the state. If there's a concerted effort to uh, steal an election. And you know, what bothers me a little bit about Jack Smith's approach, although I understand why he's doing it. I think is it feels a little bit like the January 6th committee to me, which largely coming from Liz Cheney made itself all about Donald Trump, that this was Donald Trump. But what the Georgia case does is show, no, this was the Georgia Republican Party. Mm-hmm. You know, the Michigan case shows that this was the Michigan Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's really important since that's where elections are run. Mm-hmm. OK, you got me on a soapbox on that. <laughs>
0: that was good. The only thing I would say is that I think what is indispensable, if this is to go well, or at least not terribly, is for the judges and the prosecutor, prosecutors to conduct themselves with probity, to conduct themselves with rectitude and a sense of gravitas associated that's appropriate to this level of uh, indictment. And from where I sit, they have been. I I have seen, uh, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I have been impressed with their ability to uh, wade through this chaos and and just say, this is my courtroom and we're going to do it this way because this is the right way. And if there's anything else, I think it just undermines the kind of the one shot we have of of getting through this well. And so, I mean, so far, I think that just speaks well to
1: what could happen. I mean, there's nothing to disagree with there, but I'm struck by the fact that these federal prosecutors and judges who have, for the most part, acted with probity and professionalism and all that are attacked as basically fascist pigs Mm -hmm. by Donald Trump. And nobody in the Republican Party, with the exception of the never-Trumpers, who are no longer part of the Republican Party, stand up and say, no, they're not. They're acting with probity, because this is how the court system works. This is what bothers me about Mitch McConnell's silence as well as that of so many others. Now It's not all, but, you know, it shouldn't just be Chris Christie out there talking about how, you know, this is how the system works. Yeah. Well, we she just had a conversation with
0: act. Tim Miller where we, we kind of go into some of the, uh, some of the reasons for, for this complete, uh, cowardice, moral cowardice.
3: We're going to have to leave it there. And it's so good to have all of you back. I'm looking forward to getting, back into our regular flow of episodes. We're gonna stay uh, bi-weekly as we were in the spring and lots of good stuff coming your way. So for the entire Democracy Works team, I'm Jenna Spinelli, thanks for listening. Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Public Media. Our editors are Michael Klein, Chris Kugler, Mark Stitzer, and Clint Yoder. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. Additional production support from Andy Grant and Christine Allen. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Democracy Works is a member of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit the democracygroup.org to learn more about our podcast collective devoted to democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode from The Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.